0: From Southern California and drove a Volvo, <laughs> had my New American Standard Bible, and was listening to John MacArthur. I thought I had it figured out. And make a long story short, you know, I, so I set out to debunk this KJV myth. You know, I was like, that's a crock. I got to figure out, I'm going to throw this idol down, you know, or whatever. I never even heard about it. Um, which, by the way, if you're sincere and that's your motive, go for it, man. Go for it. Uh, make a long story short, we were introduced to the ministry of biblical discipleship and the whole philosophy uh, shortly thereafter in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, I was growing as a Christian for those first four years, listening to John MacArthur tapes, basically, going to Southern Baptist Church that I was going to uh, before that. And uh, But man, when I got a hold of what the Word of God really is, and how you can learn it for yourself, and how God has laid it out, and how, man, you can... You can feed yourself and not just expect somebody else to do it. My growth curve went up like crazy. And, and that's really why we're here. Th- that's why I bothered to tell you that story, because that's why we're here. We're here because there's people in our churches, there's people in the world that, they don't know that. They just think that if they go to the Christian bookstore, they got the goods, you know, buying some book off the shelf. And uh, you know what those things are like these days. It's a, it's a tough deal. And so, you know, obviously, Went through the training that was made available to me uh, through Decatur Baptist Church and went to Albania and thanked the Lord, had privilege of serving the Lord there for 14 years. And I picked up a wife and a couple of kids there. It was awesome. (laughs) And love that experience. And it's not worth talking about today, but I mean, God brought me back to the States. And we landed here in the Atlanta area mainly because we didn't know where to go. Uh, but we knew we needed to move on from from albania and hopefully we'll talk even about that a little bit later why but um now i'm in ohio and uh it, through it all okay it, what have we been doing well hopefully we're just doing this what we're talking we're just doing the ministry of discipleship right. Right. that is the great commission go and make disciples that's it. that's it and so man went to albania and did it and god put me in a country full of people who had never heard the gospel at all because for a whole generation it was forbidden and so people were hearing the gospel for the very first time in their life and getting saved like i did like my wife did and uh i just taught them the things we we teach (laughs) and it worked because they're eternal god-given principles they're culturally independent It's truth, and it works, and so it should work, and and that's what we're going to talk about. We're talk about the pattern. God gave us the pattern, so what are we doing now? Well, now I'm in Ohio, and and we're just trying to keep making disciples and training people that will go and keep making disciples, and you know, I mean, listen, every one of us has a purpose and a ministry. Uh, It's the ministry of reconciliation. It's the ministry of growing those kids up. People come to you in your churches and they say, "Man, I, you know, what can I do? Go win somebody to Jesus and train them up. Yeah. How about that?" Yeah. Well, I don't know how to do that. Well, let's train you up. Yeah. And if you do that, you know, I, okay. So when I was leaving, okay, so you know, I was kind of like I was excited, young man, learning, Indicator Baptist back in those years in late 80s, early 90s, and you know, I'm kind of like the dog chasing the car. And when Albania came around and it seemed like I really had the green light and it was time to actually go, 30-year-old bachelor, you know, it's kind of like the dog that catches the car. What are you going to do with it now? You finally caught it. What are you going to do with it? And, and I looked at my pastor and I said, honestly, man, I, I don't really know what to do. I mean, I, I've never started a church from scratch. I don't, I don't, I'm alone. I don't, I've been praying about doing this and I think God's leading me, but I'm not I'm not exactly sure what to do." And really, truly, the greatest advice ever for me at that time in my life for sure, he said, well, Jeff, you got a Bible, you know how to lead people to Jesus, and you know how to disciple them, just go do that. That ought to keep you busy for a while. And I thought, there's got to be a reason why that's not a good answer. But that was the right answer, and that's what I set out to do. I, you know, I went to Albania just to say, okay, I got to learn the language, and I got to do that stuff. But I got to win people to Jesus, and I got to make disciples. And before I knew it, it was 14 years later. I mean, it just it keeps you busy. It's it's a purpose for your life. Okay, so let's you know let's look at what we have in front of us. And again, let me just say um, this is review material, but man, I hope I hope it'll be just refreshing and encouraging to you. So we're going to talk about the pattern. Um, you know, there's an administration and there's a philosophy and, and there is a pattern. And, and when I saw the pattern, it revolutionized how I understood and pursued ministry, right? Um, discipleship is all about growth. It's about growth and maturity. That's what it's all about. And, and ever more in my life, every year that clicks off, more and more I get to the point where I think, I'm getting a better picture of what I thought I understood the year before. And that is, all of life is about growth and maturity. And so when people in your churches act foolishly, when I act foolishly, they're just really issues of growth and maturity. And when you come to understand the process that God has set in place, and then you look out among your people and you see them behaving in a particular way that is very characteristic of a particular stage of growth. Now, you and everybody else may have thought that this person would have or should have been at a higher stage of growth, but they are proving by their behavior that they're actually at a lower level. Well, rather than just getting all ticked off, why can't you just say, oh, oh, okay. Oh, now I understand where you're really at. Well. Can I help you go to the actual next step in your life, not the perceived next step in your life? So understanding the pattern really does, in my opinion, give handles and understanding to know how to best respond to all the challenges of a very difficult life that's in front of us. So God is our Heavenly Father. We are His children. And his goal for all of our lives is to grow up. Ephesians chapter 4, you, you know the passage, right, where God gives gifts. Jesus Christ gave gifts to the church, yeah. none the least of which pastors and teachers, right? right? And in that passage, starting in verse 11 and going down to verse 16, he gives, it, he gives these gifts to the church for the perfecting of the saints. And you know the word perfecting is the maturing, the completion the complete growth and development of the saints. And it says that that that's going to happen until we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Well, you can say unto the... uh, we, We come to be just like Jesus, the perfect man. But a perfect man, as perfect as used, is unto a mature man, right? And we know that's what it means because in the next verse it says that we henceforth be no more children, characterized by like a flag blowing in the wind of crazy doctrines that happen in this world right but in verse 15 speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even christ so and our life is just a constant never-ending process of spiritual growth and maturity and we'll talk about seven levels and most all of you know about those things but even if you get to that last level Are you really done? I mean, have you really arrived? I mean, okay, maybe you're not really cycling back to number one, and maybe you've kind of got, I don't mind getting ahead of myself, because I know you kind of know this stuff. You get back to repentance, and you should always have a repentant heart. I get it. But man, if you think you're to the level of having a world vision and fulfilling God's mission, and you've gone past the point of no return, and you're all in for the Lord, uh, you know, you still got flesh. You still live in a present evil world there's still a a living devil that hates you and so you know life is tough and there's challenges and i don't know i I, i'm just i'm just a student of human behavior i i am i i you know i'm watching you no i mean i'm just church gets nervous I mean I, I do, I, I I watch stuff all the time with the eyes of trying to understand because I'm you know I'm still as mature as I might think I am, I'm still a little child. I'm God's child. And you know, and you probably know this. I mean everybody you know, if you if you're Christian and you're even remotely interested in serving the Lord, everybody uses the word discipleship, right? listen okay so i was a missionary i'm now a pastor that gets you know our church is big enough that we get a lot of calls from a lot of missionaries i've never heard of but hey they got a big church they got money i'll call him and i get it i'm not even mad at him i get it and if i'm going to talk to him well tell me what you want to do well i can't remember the last time a guy didn't say discipleship or disciple or train or i can't remember a time a guy didn't use the word But then you dig a little deeper. You say, well, okay, well, tell me about what that means. Well, you know, it means I used to help on the bus ministry. Or I used to teach Sunday school. Or, I mean, tell me about your disciples. Tell me about how you grew. Tell me about how you grew up other people. Well, it's a Sunday school class. Or whatever it is. And those are fine. Those are cool. They have their place. But it's not biblical discipleship. And so, I mean, you know, we know this. It's it's a way of life. It becomes... It becomes the air that you breathe or else it doesn't happen. And I think that's, that's something we need to think about. So, you know, there's methods. I get it. There's tools. A lot of us come from, you know, the same root of the tree that, you know, I don't know who it was. Was it, everybody, was it you? I mean, somebody came up with the magic number 16 for lessons. I don't know how that worked. But anyways, whatever it was, praise the Lord. It's just a tool. You want to write them different, do them different. Okay, whatever. But if you're pouring your life into somebody, and going through these goals that Brian's covering and understanding the philosophy that Gary covered and, and understanding the pattern as God lays it out. And well, great, use whatever tools you got. And Tony's gonna to come up and talk about the tools that are being prepared and that's fantastic. And, but man, at the end of the day, we just need to see that there is a pattern. God has, you know, a couple of white lines on the outside and he runs on that road and we, if we're gonna be smart, we need to do that too. So, your notes, by the way, you know, it was actually a mistake, but I think it's gonna to work to your advantage. I sent Joe the wrong set of notes. That was, They're supposed to have blanks, but the blanks are already filled in. So, God bless you, pens down. So, I, I told Joe, I said, I, I sent you the notes the way I sent them to my secretary. They're underlined and highlighted where she's supposed to pull the word out. He said, I ain't your secretary. So. Yeah, I know that's why I started the sentence with I'm sorry. In your notes it should say how does God raise his children? Is there a biblical pattern that we can see in his word? And, and of course yes there is and, and I think pretty much everybody understands when, when you study the Bible and you study the different terms that are used for the children of God there are seven not surprisingly right so it starts with babes and then some places they're called little children and some places they're called children and some places they're called young men and someplace they're called fathers and someplace they're called elders and sometimes they're called aged men and it shouldn't surprise us that they're seven and and you know we we've seen that before and but what people don't seem to understand is that salvation is a gift but spiritual maturity is not a gift i mean how many times do we meet people in churches ours or who's i mean and and people just think well you know i'm a trustee in this church because i've been here 40 years I'm an elder in this church because, like, like it's a seniority gig, you know, in a, in, a, um, in a union factory shop job or something. I mean, I've been here longer than you. It doesn't happen automatically. You've got to put the time in. You've got to put the work in. Um, God gives you the gift of life that you couldn't have possibly gotten on your own. But he wants to know how much it means to you whether you're going to grow up or not. And so it's going to take some work. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. That's where it says, work out your own salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work it out. The gift has been given to you. Now work it out, right? And it's a process. So in Colossians chapter 3, 23 to 25, it talks about that of the Lord, you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. I think sometimes we get the inheritance thing messed up because we think of an inheritance, well, you know, I got the same last name as my dad, so I get the goods. But that's not really how it works in the Bible. Because the reward is something that you earn. The reward of the inheritance doesn't come just because you have the name. You inherit his image just because you received him. But the rewards come because you work. You you take and you work out your salvation. So there's something you got to go through, right? I mean, Paul understood that, Philippians 3, 12 to 15, right? He says, look, I, didn't, I don't pretend that I'm already perfect and figured it all out. I'm still striving after the thing. He says in verse 13, I, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on and he says in verse 15, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. If you're mature, you'll get this, right? You have to keep striving. You have to keep going forward in this thing. And so, again, in your notes, God expects you to continue to grow and develop to full maturity. This is a principle that I find people just don't seem to understand. Uh, the average Christian person doesn't, they don't get this. They, they think that. The the full meal deal is for the clergy, whatever that is. You know the the revere end. You know. <laughs> but God expects. I mean, you got to understand this. Look, you how many? And you know, the physical illustrates the spiritual, right? So so you don't have three, four, five, six kids in your family and say. Well, you know, if one of you fully develops, that's cool. No, you want all of them to fully develop and be healthy and and productive members of society, right? right? I mean, that's what you want. You expect that of all of them. And and obviously, if for some reason in your physical family, you have a child who has disabilities and struggles with areas, you love them with no end. And you help them every step of the way. But... The expectation is, is that you pray and ask God, man, I want my children to fully grow and develop and, and be productive adults that'll reproduce and have children and fully grow and develop. And, and that's what God expects for all of us. And so, man, when I realized this in my life, when I realized that God expected that of me, man, it, it transformed my life. I never saw things the same again. When I understood that it didn't matter how the money came in to pay my bills my life was given to the lord to continue to grow and to continue to minister and serve him how he chose to fund it is up to him and so man that that changed my view of everything so what's the pattern look like well you know we're going to look at the old testament picture and we we are going to do a flyby we're just going to kind of you know hit the mountaintops and just kind of move on. You know, this stuff is taught in detail in D2 classes and and whatnot. And uh, okay, but there is an Old Testament picture of discipleship. And it stems from Exodus chapter 4, where God on purpose says, when he refers to Israel as his son, his firstborn. And even modern day Jews struggle with understanding that Jesus Christ was the Messiah because they look at the prophecies of the son and they apply them to the nation of Israel. And there is some basis for that because Israel is called God's son. Nehemiah chapter 8, they go back to rebuild, right? The walls and, and it says when they, when they were finished the work, man, it said they all gathered together to rejoice and it says they all gathered together as one man. Well, that's, that's how it works. And the quicker you understand that a body of people behave like an individual, well, that'll help you lead your churches. Because the body of your church responds as an individual. The church that I lead is, well, for me, it's plenty big. <laughs> it's more than I can handle. Um, so it's big enough that it's, okay, in the level of hundreds of people, some are very mature and doing very well, and some are very immature because they're newly saved, and some are very immature because they've never worked at growing even though they got saved a long time ago, and some pretend to be mature in their carnal, and they're at all levels of the spectrum. But the body of First Baptist Church responds as one man. And my job as the pastor is to try and determine where that body is and to help the entire body as a body take the next step according to the pattern to get to the body of our church. Well, this man's doing awesome. That guy, eh, not so much. But as a body, I will inevitably share some brief stories about some of the challenges that I am personally going through right now. We recently officially disciplined four men out of our church for some gross sin, perverse stuff. And prior, just immediately prior to that, and these, these issues are not unrelated in the last thirteen. Moses eventually mans up. He's got weaknesses, but God uses them and he does the miracles and he does all the plagues and, you know, he goes through all that stuff to prove that he's God, to prove to everybody, hey man, this is this is real. And then ultimately the last one, right? The death of the firstborn. And so God says, look, I'm going to pass through the land and I'm going to kill all the firstborn, but if you take the lamb and You know the story, Exodus chapter 12, and you apply the blood to the posts and the top of the door, and and, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so the Passover is instituted, but ultimately what that is is that Israel, the Son of God, is saved by the blood of the Lamb. Right? That is their salvation. So every good Jew would have understood that when Jesus Christ shows up in John chapter 1, 29, he's going to be baptized of John the Baptist, and behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The picture of the Passover, right? I mean, this is is the story. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it talks about purging out the leaven, and it says, for Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. He is our Passover. That's who it is, and that's the picture. And so the nation of Israel experiences their salvation. Why? Because the blood of the Lamb was shed. And that's how you got saved the blood of the lamb was shed, you applied it to your life, and death, the second death, passes over you. Praise the Lord for that. But that's just the beginning, right? Because Israel then goes on and they start the rest of the story. And so Exodus chapter 13 is the next phase where we enter into, we just typically refer to it as repentance, trials, Uh, things happen in your life, things come up that are You know, things you got to decide whether you're going to respond in faith or whether you're just going to quit or whatever the case might be. And so, you know, immediately what happens? Saved by the blood of the Lamb, they're going out. Pharaoh, you know, he's ticked. He's chasing them. I'm going to kill them. And so they they run and they get as far as they can get and they got a head start. And oh man, the Red Sea. Now what are we going to do? And we're hosed. And uh, obviously, God does the miracle and He brings them across the thing. And man, they, 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 they cross that thing. And, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know, it refers to it as a baptism. You were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Yeah. And so, for Israel, the Son of God, they were saved by the blood of the Lamb. They're Tested with this trial that Pharaoh, a picture of Satan, one of only two men in the Bible, that's referred to as a dragon, the other Nebuchadnezzar, a picture of the devil, and he's chasing him, he's trying to kill him. Yeah, I know there's tribulational. you know, we're not talking about that today. And so they go through this baptism, and and they make it on the other side. And what happens? These these believers, they, they realize, wow, God did that. We could not have possibly done that. And that's what God does. He, he challenges you. He wants to see if you'll trust him. He'll, he'll do some amazing things to open your eyes and help you to realize what, he, what it is he's doing. They get on the other side of the sea, and oh, by the way, the baptism really is, I mean, you know, that is an amazing picture. Well, we'll get to that. It's an amazing picture and an amazing test. I, I love how God did that. I, didn't, I wasn't raised in church, and, and so I didn't have any religious history or baggage, but it always kind of—I just got to say this. I, it always kind of stunned me. Why not like you know not like anybody's asking me? Why baptism? I mean, what really? What's the big deal if if getting baptized in water doesn't save you? Doesn't really. It just makes you wet. Why baptism? Why not stand on your head and wiggle your ears? I, don't, I mean. Why? I don't know. Why? I mean, that's just weird. Why? And I don't know that, you know, I'm not real deep. But how about this? You don't have to know anything to get baptized. You don't have to do anything to get baptized. You know what you got to do to get baptized? Say, yeah, that's all you got to do. You just got to be willing. And so, listen, man, don't get me wrong. I'm not a heretic. I don't think baptism saves anybody. But if you won't get baptized... I'm wondering about you. I'm just wondering about you, because there's just something in your heart that says, "Hey, thanks for the salvation thing, God. Uh, forget you on what you want me to do." There's just something wrong with that, right? So you gotta wonder whether or not they actually really surrender to the Lord. And you know, again, that's above my pay grade. But hey, that's why God put it in there. It's you don't have to know. You don't have to pray King James prayers. You don't have to know stuff. You just have to say, God said you need to get baptized. Well, if that's what he said, I'll do it. I mean, we have some really good teaching now and these lessons and stuff to really explain baptism. You know what I knew when I got baptized? I mean, I got baptized right after I got saved. I, I only knew last will and testament. I didn't know anything. They said you're supposed to get baptized. Okay. Okay. I don't wanna get baptized again. I did it I did it right. I just didn't know I didn't know what I know now. Who cares? I was repentant, I was submissive, I was willing, right? So Israel followed the p- the pattern and they get on the other side and they sing a song of victory to the Lord and man and then God, what does he do? He brings the manna and he just lays it out, and he just drops it in front of their tent. And it's just laying outside in the morning, just go get you some. It's right there. And man, that's picture of the i mean you get it, it's a picture of god's word and feeding miraculous feeding with the bread that comes from heaven and the next chapter and i'll say well you know this bread is kind of good i'm getting kind of thirsty there's no water in the desert and you know moses smites the rock and the water comes out and man god's providing these are tests these are challenges they're living in a place where there's no food there's no drink oh these guys the amalekites show up and we got to fight with them and you know moses is on the hill and lessons about prayer in the battle and hold up his arms so joshua can win the battle down in the in the valley and you're gonna have enemies you're gonna have struggles but man these are trials these are opportunities these are tests so that we can just trust the lord and surrender to him because the issues of a new life require that they require decisions and decisions to obey and decisions to follow god and decisions to let him do what he does well the story goes on you get to exodus 19 and 20 and you work all the way through the end of Exodus, and you come all the way through the book of Leviticus, and what do you get? You get the next stage. I, I call it, I've always called it illumination. Other people use enlightenment or, or whatever, but illumination, enlightenment. Uh, God gives the law. God sets his standard. He finally says, okay, go up to Sinai. I'm going to tell, tell you what I'm all about. And he gives the law. He gives his word. He tells them exactly what they need to know. Wow, you guys have trusted me. Basically, they just said, hey, we got a cloud. We got a pillar of fire. When I move, you move. When I stay put, you stay put. You're like, Lord, we don't have anything to eat. Oh, here's some food. We don't have anything to drink. Oh, here's something to drink. Now God's going to say, oh, let me write it down for you. Let me write it down for you. So he takes him and he writes it down for him. And praise the Lord for that, right? So he gives them the law. And uh, man, what does the law require? Obedience. That's what it requires. And so you come through the book of Leviticus and you know, what is that? Well, it's the priesthood and it's the sacrifices and it's the offerings and, you know, it's your favorite part to read every year when you're reading through the Bible. Right. And you get to all that stuff and you realize, man, this is all about setting up the tabernacle. This is all about setting up worship. And God actually has some things that he's looking for. You want to connect with God. You want to worship him. You want to hear from him. You want to interact with the Lord. God's word is going to reveal that to you, yeah. Right? So what is God instructing his son Israel with the proper knowledge about how to develop. He brings it to the people. Now he's like, no, I'm going to take it to the people and I'm going to give it to them. It's like Jesus feeding the five thousand. He gives it to the disciples. The disciples go pass it out to the people. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so, among those things that he's doing, man, what else does he do? He gives the pattern, and the pattern is, well, you're going to build the tabernacle, and it's going to have, you know, I never knew what ouches of gold is, but you got to have those, you know, and a bell and a pomegranate, and you know, I'm sure that's all really important. But there's a pattern. And you're supposed to follow all that stuff. Smarter guys figure that out. I know this. It's very specific. I know this. You better follow it. I know this. Aaron the high priest was pretty interested when he went into the Holy of Holies that he didn't have something messed up in the procedure. Right? He didn't want to drop dead. I mean there's something to setting up this pattern. And then when God sets up the pattern, well, you probably better follow it. If you want to commune with the Lord, I mean, you don't want spiritual death. You don't want to derail your whole process. And so that's worship. That's the tabernacle. That's communing with God. Well, they continue on. And we go into the book of Numbers, which I I love the book of Numbers. I don't know why. It's weird. I love reading about how the children of Israel were just big whiners. I take comfort in that. It makes me feel better about me. And really, at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. Uh, that's how we think sometimes, isn't it? Um, but it, it reminds me. You know, if you listen, man. If you read those stories in Numbers and you think, how stupid those guys were. Oh, my goodness. Don't they realize? Well, just... Just check yourself out, man. Yeah. And just say, Israel represents any individual Christian. Yeah. And there's, it's in there for a reason. Right. So what they got to do in the book of Numbers now is they have to begin to apply what God showed them from Sinai. They've got his word. They've got the pattern. They've got it set up. Now they're going to start living life. Now they're going to start you know, their journey and their wanderings as they take off through the desert on this pilgrim's progress to the promised land, right? And so the lessons that are learned at Sinai are the ones that ultimately need to be lived out continually. So you start in the book of Numbers, and there's a lot of chapters of, well, numbering people. But while he's numbering people, what is he doing? He's assigning them jobs to do. So he numbers the people 20 years old and up, and he's like, you guys are going to do this, and you guys are going to do that, and you're going to serve in the tabernacle, and you're going to serve the priests, and you're going to do this, and What are they doing? They're taking the knowledge that they have and they're going to begin to live it out. They're going to begin to apply it in their lives. This is ministry participation. So he numbers the people and you take, you know, the Levites and you're going to take them from age 30 until age 50 and they're going to serve the tabernacle and you get to chapter 6 and it talks about this Nazarite vow and how people are going to be sanctified and set apart for special service to the Lord. And then you get to about chapter 10 and Israel now is ready to move forward and God says, okay, we're, we're moving and, and we're leaving now and we're gonna go uh, towards, from Sinai to, to Paran and it's time to move. And so God moves them and they begin their journey, but it's gonna be a long journey and it's gonna be a hard journey. And I realize that in the Bible, it, it talks about the physical distance that they probably could have covered it in a real short time. But they were told only to journey when God told them to journey. And they were told to camp when God told them to camp. So when the cloud moves, you move. When the cloud stays put, you stay put. And we know it took them 40 years because of disobedience, but we don't know exactly how long they were supposed to take. I would guess probably three and a half years. I would guess God would have intended for them to make it to the promised land in about three and a half years. But that's just me. The Bible doesn't actually say. But we're supposed to walk with him. It's a journey, but it's hard. I mean, they're in the desert, and so they start complaining. And what are they complaining about? Well, flesh. You know, thanks, thanks, Lord, for the bread. I mean, but what have you done for me lately? You know, sure could use some quail. That'd be nice. You know, something new to kill and eat, right? That was something to do. And they're like, hey, let's try that. And, you know, so the Lord is gracious, and he gives it to them, and they're... And they're complaining some more and oh, this woman named Miriam shows up and she's like, Moses, Moses, Moses. You know, why do you get to be the big shot? And she's complaining against Moses and God does what I wish he'd do for me and he gives her leprosy. (laughs) I love Moses, man. Moses the man. Because this is the time when things are begin to be put into practice and you start to recognize there's consequences and you realize, man, if I, if I blow this thing, then, man, stuff's going to happen. But God's working. He's, he's trying to develop them. And so they're beginning to apply. You ha- Listen, you have to put into application what you're getting right. You're not going to be healthy otherwise. You've got to have some exercise. Well, the next level, developing leaders. Going from Numbers chapter 13... Well, through Deuteronomy, I mean, really numbers, but Deuteronomy kind of, you, know, you know how it goes, it kind of just repeats the giving of the law and the declarations before they cross over into the promised land. But, but they, it gets them to the point where they go through all that journeying and they get to the Jordan River. And, you know, they're on the east side of the Jordan and they're going to cross into the promised land. And, you know, I get it. There's a lot of bad teaching about crossing the Jordan is like dying and going to heaven. And that's really not the Bible picture. But, but truly the Jordan River is a point of separation. The Jordan River is all about separating yourself. That's what it's all about. And so, you know, so Israel now, the son of God, gets to the point where they've been through a lot, right? So the spies, you know, they come and they go to spy out the land in Numbers 13. And we've heard already about that. Obviously, Joshua and Caleb, the only ones that responded well, 10 of them responded in fear. And so 40 years, everybody from ages 20 and up, they didn't get to enter into the promised land. and, And they went through all the stuff they went through, But they get finally to where they're going, basically. And the promised land is just over yonder. How'd I do? Did good? good? Okay. And they got to decide, are we really going to do this thing? Are we really going to pull this thing off? And the whole book of Deuteronomy, Moses just says, hey, by the way, let me remind you of everything we already talked about, because this is the real deal. And I love it that Moses gives him a zinger and he's just like, you know, I was supposed to go with you, but you guys messed it up for me. You know, you made me so stinking mad that I was supposed to speak to the rock and I went and hit it again and now I'm out and it's your fault. (laughs) So if you're going without me, at least remember this stuff. And so he gives them the stuff and they have the opportunity, but they have to make the decision. They have to decide, look, are are we ready to go? Moses isn't going to be there anymore to hold their hand joshua and caleb are clear leaders they are obviously the oldest adults everybody else is younger right they're 40 and under and joshua and caleb are up in their 80s and so they're the leaders we're developing leadership this is a point where it's time to say look we're passing the baton we're turning it over other people have to begin to do some things but it's just the beginning of that and listen if you've never really considered this you need to consider the fact that as this pictures the life of any disciple growing in the Lord according to his pattern, the vast majority of people that came through the process of the wandering in the wilderness never made it to the promised land. They never made it to spiritual maturity. And, and by, oh, 40 years. You, you have members in your church that have been saved in church for 40 years. And maybe they've never put in the work and maybe they just wander around in circles and maybe they never actually put the soles of their feet into the Jordan so the Jordan will separate so they can pass, so they can get across and no turning back and then experience the land that flows with milk and honey. You have people in your churches that will never do that for whatever reason, they just refuse. They won't do it. They're going to rebel. They're going to live in fear. They're going to always be looking over their shoulder at Egypt and saying, it wasn't so bad back there. And so they die in the wilderness. And if you're a pastor, you do funerals of people in your church that spiritually died in the wilderness. Thank God they're saved. Thank God you can encourage their families that they're saved. But they really never made it they really never made it. And that's a sad thing. So the sixth thing, we call it separation because this is, these guys are separating themselves. They're actually going to cross. They're actually going to cross the Jordan River. So we get into the book of Joshua and we kind of run through, right? The judges and first and second Samuel as we enter into the first couple of kings of Israel. And I mean, this is a big test. Like I said, they, unlike the Red Sea where God did everything and he parted the waters and, you know, they just did it. And he, Killed Pharaoh, and the, when they tried to chase him, in this case they had to literally. The Jordan River didn't just miraculously part, and then they walked across. They had to touch their shoes in the water, and then the water parted. See, it's another level. It's another step. It's something that they had to realize. The question is: So, okay, God, spread the waters, and I'll go. Waters don't spread. Come on, God, spread the waters and I'll go. That waters don't spread. Well, I thought we were in this together, Lord. I already gave you the written instructions. What else do you want me to tell you? I mean, I've been dropping food at your tent flap for 40 years. I mean, what else do I got to tell you? Just do what I said. So they put their shoes in the water, the water parted, and they began to go. Because this is a time when you're just going to believe, you're going to say, you know, burn the ships. We're going in. This is it. There's no turning back, because once they cross over, it's a new world, man. Uh, Canaan represents a life of maturity, and, and in this life of maturity, okay, you're going to still have challenges. You're still going to have difficulty. You know, the, you know the deal. Joshua brings them in, not Moses. Why? Because Joshua represents Jesus Christ, and Moses represents the law, And the law alone can't bring you to spiritual maturity only jesus can bring you to spiritual maturity as you continue to walk with jesus step by step so joshua brings them in to the life of spiritual maturity but it's not without problems because once they cross over and i have this in your notes there's three things that they deal with and so we i call it feed fight and fill well the manna ceases once they get on the other side well, you've got a land full of good food. Go get your own food now. Because when you cross over into spiritual maturity, you don't need somebody dropping bread at your tent flap anymore. Go get your own food, man. It's out there. And if you don't get it, well, I guess you're losing weight. I mean, it's out there. You just got to go get it. And then, you know, oh, by the way, here's the promised land it's full of enemies. but I've given it to you so go take it I'll help you win but they're gonna try and kill you man so go for it so you know Canaan can't be heaven right the enemies are gone there's no more okay you're going into Canaan you're going to spiritual maturity now you've got real enemies with weapons and they're aiming at you it's not like shooting deer they ain't got guns I mean, when they give the deer the guns, then it's a game, man. I don't hunt, sorry. I live in hunting land, but I don't hunt. I'm not against it. But I got a job, I just buy food. So, praise the Lord. So, you know, before they crossed into Canaan, Right, their battles were their flesh, the world. Right, the, their flesh. They cross into the Canaan. They got guys trying to kill them. So you know, they go to Gilgal and great pictures that circumcision, the the separation from their flesh, keeping the Passover again, finally remembering where they come from, kind of like the Lord's Supper. And man, so I put a little I put a little chart in your notes where we have, you know. Three different enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, represented by Egypt, wilderness, and Canaan. And really the solution that God gives, and this, is, this will help you disciple people. Well, if your disciple's battling with the world, the answer is flee, leave, separate yourself, right? But if they're dealing with issues in the wilderness, these are the issues of their flesh, then the answer is grow. You grow through that. That's what discipleship's all about, growth through those challenges. But when you make it to spiritual maturity and you pass the point of no return and you really are in the battle as a fellow laborer, it's not just all milk and cookies, right? I mean, you gotta fight, and you have an enemy, the devil, who is trying to stop you. Right. And the Bible says, just st- it doesn't say attack; it says stand. Yeah. Don't retreat. Stand. Yeah. So I like to think of it this way. So the issue is separation from the world, discipline, or discipleship discipline for the flesh and reproduction devil's trying to kill you so let's make more of us how about that so that's go and fill the land and so you know be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth now you're going to enter into the place that i intend for you to be each tribe is going to take up their parcel of land and and have a lot of babies it's yours knock yourself out have a great time this is your life but you're gonna have you're gonna to have to win some battles But they do they go in and they win battles and they drive out enemies and the tribes are established under the rule of the judges and saul who did good for a little while until he blew it and then david and so that's their process until ultimately number seven world vision which would be the fulfillment of god's mission under the reign of solomon so you know the story david tried to build god a temple and god said no you've got bloody hands and your son will do it. And so David gathers all the materials and sets it all up. That'd make a building project a little easier. Gets it all set up and Solomon responds right and asks God. God says, whatever you want. And he says, I just need wisdom. He said, man, good answer. And so, man, God blesses Solomon and their reign is a reign of peace. They're not fighting their enemies and the wisest man that ever lived and secular history refuses to record him. I mean, the greatest king ever and uh man the temple is built and all the nations come in to worship it and man, god's god's intention was always that israel would be the lighthouse to the world and so the first eight chapters of first kings man solomon is knocking it out and he flat sets it up now we know the story degrades later we know that solomon blows it we know that he goes from being a type of jesus christ to a type of the antichrist and he takes many outlandish women and they turn his heart and he Turns to idols and the kingdoms divided and all that stuff they blow it but in the development of israel from their inception in egypt in the world through being saved by the blood and coming to the point where they they're fulfilling god's mission in their land with peace jesus christ on the throne of the millennium in peace because the devil is bound for a thousand years man this is god's pattern this is how god raises his son. And so we see the same thing played out, right, in the New Testament. And so we'll call it the New Testament process. I thought I was going to get further in this. Okay, the New Testament process of discipleship, and, and I, will, I will just kind of fly through this. I think you're aware of it. The idea is, is that the same pattern that we see God the Father do with Israel in the Old Testament is the same pattern you can track Jesus Christ use with his 12 disciples right they're going to take them through this seven stage process and so you do a comparative analysis of the gospels and you realize what's going on and and you look at things like first corinthians chapter 10 and the first 10 or 11 verses where it refers to moses and the children of israel in the old testament in the wilderness and it says hey these are examples. these are these are stories that you need to learn from that you don't lust after the things they lusted after that you don't fall to the temptations that they fell to You, church, you are supposed to understand these things. So, I put in your notes, we study the life of Jesus and the disciples. We see a pattern emerge on how he dealt with them. The first one being repentance or change. Jesus obviously preached repentance from the beginning of his ministry. It's It's a core element to understanding the gospel and salvation and turning to the Lord. But also that baptism thing, which I already commented on. And Jesus surrenders to it himself. It's a picture It shows that willing heart and willingness to obey. And that's what you need to see in your disciples. And that's what the disciples of Jesus needed to see. That, you know, John's like, what, are you crazy? I need to be baptized to you. What are you talking about? I need to baptize you. And he's like, suffer it to be so for now, right? We have to fulfill all righteousness. And he's he's showing them the pattern, man. We just got to surrender to what God says is what we have to do. And so, like I said, I'm skeptical about people who refuse to be baptized. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just confused why in the world you wouldn't do something that requires zero skill or understanding it just requires submission why don't you do that well the next stage is illumination or knowledge and jesus christ then takes the first six months ish of his time with them and he says man i want to teach you about me it's what he says in matthew 11 right 28 through 30 come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and i'll give you rest take my yoke upon you and what does he say learn of me I'm meek and lowly in heart you'll find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and Jesus spends an enormous amount of time with these men and he wants them to understand who he really is and so you can track some of that through different gospels of course I I like the first five chapters of John and so you know you see some miracles but not an overwhelming amount of them but but Jesus uses these miracles and the discourses that he has during this early phase to primarily to confirm his deity to the disciples he wants to prove to them who he is and your disciple when you're making disciples you know that works out they, they they surrender to the lord they have a desire to do what's right but they don't know a lot they need to they need to see god work and and god starts doing some miracles in their life and i can't remember who said it but somebody said something about man god was you know turning every every traffic light green and get me parking spots right close to i mean things that we think are silly i mean god you're like wow praise the lord god's doing amazing things and it's a wonderful time and if you're discipling a guy and they're going through that phase it's the most fun time ever because God's answering prayers left and right later on when they grow not maybe so much because God just says I already wrote it down just trust me but here man God's just he's just putting it out there and that's so he has his baptism Christ testifies of himself there's the turning of the water into wine and the wedding at Cana he cleanses the temple I mean, he's teaching them lessons through this, right? He has the whole discourse with Nicodemus about needing to be born again. And there's the woman of Samaria, right? We went through that in John chapter 4 and the whole idea of worship. And, and man, the whole, the, the, going to Samaria, the, the, ex, just experiencing and developing that whole idea that we're reaching out even to Samaritans and the pool of Bethesda and the lame man. And man, all these things are happening, And I love what it says in John chapter 5 and 17 and 18. Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, notice, making himself equal with God. And that's that's what he's trying to do. He's just trying to confirm in the hearts of these young disciples, look, you made the right decision. I won't let you down. I am the Messiah. And that's why he did what he did. Well, the third stage is participating in ministry, of course, because this is the time in the ministry when Christ challenges his disciples to a public commitment. So from the very beginning, he calls, you know, Peter and James and John, and he says, hey, man, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. So leave your fishing, and I'm going to teach you how to do a new kind of fishing. So from the very beginning, it was always an expectation. Yeah, I'm gonna, you're going to come and learn of me, but it's not just your whole life sitting around watching me do it. Eventually, you're going to have to become a fisher of men. Eventually, you're going to have to get busy and do stuff like that. So knowledge brings accountability and the responsibility to pass it on to others. So when your disciple is learning and growing and getting these things, of course they need to be understanding. You need to be helping them to understand there is an expectation. We're not doing this just because we don't have anything else to do. I'm sacrificing time away from my wife and my kids and stuff I might rather do because it's worth it, because I love you, I want to invest in you, and because you're going to invest in somebody else. And if you're not going to invest in somebody else, then let's just be honest and not waste each other's time. I care enough about you to not waste yours, and I hope you care enough about me to not waste mine. But we're going to do this thing because there's an expectation, and we need to go that way. And so the true multiplication begins when the disciples get involved in ministry, like in Luke chapter 10, the 12 helped the Lord disciple the 70. And you can go into Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, and and man, this is right after the Sermon on the, man, there's just miracle after miracle after miracle, and they're watching Jesus deal with the masses. They're seeing how he does it, and they're learning about evangelism, and they're learning how to deal with opposition, and they're learning lessons about being free from legalism with the Pharisees, and Christ's power and his authority over sin and the devil, and Man, there's just all these things happening and they're observing and they're beginning to participate. So of course, when they begin to participate, some separate themselves from others and we have leaders begin to develop, stage four. So Christ's focus notice in his ministry was not on programs to reach the masses, right? But the development of leaders whom the masses would follow. It's a continuation. So we like to say it this way. Success without a successor is failure. Right. Success without a successor is failure. Right. If, we tell people all the time, if you're involved in a ministry, if you're leading people, if you're doing anything at all, you have to replace yourself. Yeah. Well, they say, hey, preacher, I, you know, I'm, I, I've been doing this for a long time. I'd like to try something else. I mean, I'd like for you to try something else. Who's going to replace you? Well, that's why I'm talking to you. No, that's why I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> do well, I got to replace you. I mean, we're all about discipleship. Why are you not training your own replacement? I mean, that's what we need to do, right? I mean, it, listen, it bothers me too. It, sometimes I think, well, you know, where's my replacement? I mean, I get it. It, it always plagues us. But that's my job. That's our job. was my job. Whatever. I didn't, I didn't say it right. But listen, that's what Jesus did. What did he focus his time on? Training these guys. Right? And let me just say, biblical leadership is selected. It's not composed of volunteers. You know, I think Gary was saying, if you could fog a mirror, you know, okay, you're, you're good. <laughs> um, that's what some churches think. Look, you, you select leaders because they've been serving and they've show that they're not novice. Um, man, but just volunteer, man, that's risky. It's just risky. I, I didn't put it in your notes, I, I'm just reminded now. I want to say it's 1 Kings 13, and you can check it if I'm, I might have got the chapter wrong, um, where Jeroboam takes over for Solomon, you know, in the northern kingdom, and after the split, and he's like, man, you know, things aren't going so good. We need to I know what we need to do. We need to reestablish that temple thing. And he's like, they have been doing that for a while, so he said, we need some priests. Got any priests? Who wants to be a priest? And it says that Jeroboam made priests of the people, whosoever would, they came and served as a priest. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam. And you, don't, you don't take leadership from volunteers. Thank God if they're willing, but you vet them. You select them. So this step occurs in Christ's ministry when he formally recognizes the twelve. And he calls them out, right? So Matthew chapter 10, he called unto Him his twelve disciples. You guys know this. And then he shifts the title. Gave them power against unclean spirits, cast them out, heal all manner of sickness and diseases. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. And if you were to keep reading, it would say, these twelve he sent forth because that's what apostle means, one who is sent forth. So we want to develop leaders and we want to send them forth. We want to have sent ones, not went ones, right? A lot of guys want to run off on their own, but that's not the way the Lord did it. He sent them, and so we submit to that. That's how you develop leaders and their character as they're growing and the challenges they have. And as that is working itself out, they still have flesh they're fighting with. We all have struggles we're fighting with. And they're brought to the next level of reevaluation and consecration. Because even leaders that are emerging need to be tested to reveal the real consecration of their hearts. We're stopping at like 12, aren't we? All right, so I'm not telling you my story then. I'm not telling you my story because... We don't have time. And I'm not telling you my story because it's painful. Um, I fired two staff members in the last 13 months. I thought they were something, it turns out they're not. And the, the, the details surrounding all of that is a lengthy story that I find myself recounting almost every day and have been For the last six weeks since it really kind of blew up when people want to ask me i i respond and tell them i am weary day and night meeting with church members who want info from me i want to give it to them i am sick of talking about it let me suffice it to say this you know everything isn't what it seems (laughs) and there are challenges lurking behind every corner and real consecration. So the last staff member I just relieved of duty in January, and it was the January before that was the other guy, so I'm not a real fan of January anymore. So, you know, I go to Sam's place, I come home and fire somebody. I don't know what happens with that. Last two years in a row. I don't think I'm coming next year. Just saying. Just putting it out there. So, man, I mean, the appearance was one thing. And so I had a conversation with him, make a long story short, and said, man, I think that all this struggle we've been fighting, politely fighting, you know, in my office for a year. I said, I don't think you've ever really been through this level five trial. Oh, yes, I have. (laughs) Okay, well, proof. (laughs) Proof you haven't. And, uh, you know, listen, the knowledge that we offer our people can be a very dangerous thing. Oh, yeah. Right? Because then you go to confront them with the process. And they say, oh, I know that. No, I don't know, know that. You're like, well, no, apparently you haven't. It appears as though you haven't. And so, there you have it, as they say, the rest of the story. It with Jesus and his disciples, just to wrap up this section of the notes. John chapter 6, verse 66. Everybody knows, right? If you've got 666, it's got to be bad. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus started saying some hard things, right? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. They're like, what's that all about? All right, I'm not hanging with this guy. And Jesus didn't run after him to keep him. I'm not saying there aren't some people you shouldn't run after. I'm just saying, in this case, Jesus didn't run after them because this is level five. This is the time where you've got to make up your mind, man. Yeah. And he turns to his closest disciples. He says, how about you guys? Are you out too? Yeah. Peter's got the great answer, right? He's like, where are we going? Right. I don't know where else to go. Right. You're our life. You're all we got. Without you, we're nothing. Yeah. He's like, okay, good answer. That's all I want to know. Amen. Point of no return. But notice this it is a critical moment this this issue here this is not a lengthy process it's just a critical moment god will confront you god will design the event and you're backed in the corner and there's no getting out i couldn't design i wouldn't want to but i couldn't design it if i wanted to god knows how to hit the issue of your heart that he needs to hit so that you finally die to yourself so that you can move on to the other stages, which, again, just just glance at them, I think you know. Responsible leadership can now be trusted with responsibility because they have finally died to themselves. And then ultimately they develop this world vision. And the thing that I like about the section in world vision with with Christ and his disciples after the resurrection, right? Jesus Christ spends 40 days with them. And it's really, he, he doesn't bring up new truth. He just reinforces the old truth. And the disciples now who are on the brink of going to win the world on their own without Jesus physically there anymore, they basically just have to put into practice all the things that they've already learned through experience. So every major principle has been taught. The putting them into practice is the thing that makes it real. And so, you know, that, that encourages me. Because... I don't pretend for a second that there's things that, like, like I got this figured out. I know, I know plenty. I know enough. I don't need to learn anymore. That's not true. I love learning. I love sitting in conferences and other guys teaching, and I can learn. But the truth is, my daily life isn't really about that. I study the Bible, and I teach my people, and God shows me things that I don't even share with them because God shows me things. I'm getting my own food. But the truth is, the real life-changing lessons that hit my life now are just living it out and trying to be a father to others and trying to help other people and trying to do the things as I see the simple principles of life manifest or not manifest and applied and how it's really going to be lived out. So Jesus, look, man, after his crucifixion, I mean, those guys blew it. They did all kind of stupid stuff. Jesus comes back, reinforces the simple stuff, and he, and he says, oh, you guys, you're ready to go, man. And you got them at they're like, does he know we just quit and went back to fishing? <laughs> does he know? I think he knows. The Lord said he ready. They would have thought they're not ready. The Lord said they were ready. So I gave you, I gave you a little chart and just compared the two side by side. Um, but listen, the goal is, Grow up. Yeah. That's the goal. Keep growing up. And let God use you to help other people keep growing up. Yeah. And, you know, if you come back tomorrow, I'll go through 2 Peter chapter 1, which is, in my opinion, the clearest doctrinal treatise on these seven steps. And we'll compare them to what we've already learned. Let me just pray and we'll be done. I'll, I'll pray for your food wherever you're going to go buy it. How about that? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the pattern and thank you for how you raise